We gather our conversations with some of the most influential NPR journalists for a look at their more personal projects. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, as a small child, Ari Shapiro got homesick for North Dakota when he visited our state. We'll get to know how his time in the Midwest made him the reporter he is today. Steve Drummond tells us about his research into the work of the Truman Committee and what it tells us about the work of Washington today. We talk with Mary Louise Kelly about the deals we make with ourselves when it comes to parenting and our professions. Plus, Sylvia Pajoli signs off. She reflects on her career later in the hour. It's all ahead as we tune in to the NPR journalists who bring news of the world to us. Let's get started. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Today, we are delighted to bring you an hour of conversations with some of NPR's top journalists. But we're not talking about the top news necessarily. We're talking about projects that mean a lot to them in 2023, memoirs, research, retirement. We begin with Ari Shapiro. Shapiro is the award-winning host of NPR's All Things Considered. He also makes frequent appearances with the band Pink Martini. He's one of those journalists who makes room for a creative life as well as groundbreaking reporting. His book is called The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. Here's my conversation with Ari Shapiro. This interview originally aired on March 24th. Ari Shapiro, welcome to In the Moment and South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Thanks for being here. It is a pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. You kick this book off with your roots in North Dakota, which I'm guessing a lot of people around here don't know. And you say that being a Jewish kid in North Dakota helped do your job by helping uh, people understand each other. Tell us a little bit about your time here in the Dakotas. Yeah, my parents both taught at NDSU. I was born in Fargo and lived there till I was eight. And I still feel like that is a town that has shaped me, even though I haven't been back since my childhood. I do, by the way, remember at a very young age, I went with my best friend's parents on a trip to South Dakota and got so painfully homesick. I remember bawling <laughs> to my parents over the phone from the hotel room. Uh, no knock on South Dakota. But the thing is, you know, as one of the few Jewish kids at my elementary school, every December, I would go from classroom to classroom with a menorah and a dreidel talking about Hanukkah. And it was kind of my first experience as a public speaker and also as an ambassador, introducing people to something they were unfamiliar with. And what I realized is that now as a journalist, I kind of perform those same acts of translation. I serve as an ambassador with people who I have no personal connection to beyond my journalistic interest in them. But when I go to coastal Senegal and talk to people whose homes are being swallowed by rising seas, or you know, I go to a small town in Mississippi where workers at a prison are not getting paid because of a government shutdown, in a way I'm doing the same kind of thing and using the same kinds of skills that I learned as that little kid in Fargo going from classroom to classroom with the menorah and the dreidel. Yeah, and it all comes down to empathy for you as well as hard-hitting journalism, but you're always looking for, you say in the book, and you can hear it in your work as well, that you're looking for the people who are impacted by the policy and you're looking for something that's relatable. Help us understand how you choose your stories and find the people that you want to talk to. 
Yeah, there's absolutely a place for asking tough questions to the people who are making policy. But the thing that I live for, the thing that I strive for, the thing that I fill the book with is the stories about the people who might seem different from us, but actually have much more in common with us than we might realize. And so when I'm traveling, doing my work as a journalist, I'm always looking for those ways to connect stories to listeners back home. I mean, to give you one example, in coastal Turkey, when I was covering the Syrian refugee crisis, I remember meeting this cafe owner who had set up folding tables in front of his restaurant with power strips. Hmm. And he had, in the windows of his restaurant, put the Wi-Fi code and password. And all of these folding tables with power strips were full of people who were making this difficult journey from Syria to Europe. And they were charging their mobile phones and they were FaceTiming or Skyping with their families back in Syria. And the Syrian refugee crisis was in the news all the time during that period. It was 2015. And I just remember thinking, oh, that search for a place to charge your phone, that search for a Wi-Fi hotspot where you can get connectivity to talk to your family, that's something that anybody listening to this story in South Dakota or anywhere in the world can connect with. And he says, I would like to think somebody would do this for me. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that empathetic leap that is so meaningful to me when I can find it and that I, I try to share with listeners and that I try to thread throughout this book. How important was, I want to bring out another aspect of this book, which is the support you received from people like Nina Totenberg, from people like Susan Stamberg, the founding mothers of NPR, your bosses, your producers, to be yourself, to be fully yourself, to get married yeah. to Mike, to do the things that you needed to do to live your life in spite of uh, sometimes listener criticism and homophobia. Yeah, when I started my career, I was really afraid that, I mean, I've, I've been out my entire adult life, so I was never hiding the fact that Mike and I have been together since we were in college. So I was never hiding him. I was never hiding the fact that, that we were together. But like, especially when the movement for same-sex marriage started in the United States and Mike and I wanted to go get married, I felt like I was stepping into the middle of a culture war that I should have been narrating as a journalist, not participating in as someone getting married. And it is a huge credit to the people I worked with, the people I worked for, that at every crossroads, they said, you should be yourself. You should be your full self. You should go get married. You should live your life. And you can also be a journalist. And that doesn't mean that I'm an advocate or an activist. It doesn't mean that I set aside the goal of representing both sides thoroughly and accurately and fairly. But that's kind of the push-pull that I try to explore throughout this book is, how do we bring our full selves to the stories that we tell and also try to fairly thoroughly in a nuanced way tell those stories that allows any listener to feel like they could be a surrogate for me, the narrator? And and it's it's a tough question, one that I've explored throughout my career in different ways, and that presents sort of one of the through lines of this book. Yeah. Another through line is this idea that you're very used to and adept at and award-winning at, at at creating radio that really is short-lived in some ways, although much of it is it endures and is timeless. But tomorrow you get to go back and do it all again. This is a book. It's going to have li <laughs> literal shelf life. What's that? Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's so stressful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, as I say in the book, I have always been attracted to forms of expression that are short-lived. Like I sing with a band. I like to cook. 
I make radio. What do these things have in, have in common? You do it and then they're gone. And then the next day you start from scratch and do it again. And one reason I was always afraid to write a book is because I knew that whether it was good, bad, or indifferent, it would sit on a shelf and stare at me forever as the book that I wrote. So now that it's out there, all I can hope is that it is meaningful to people, that it has a positive impact, that people laugh or cry or are moved or want to read something aloud to a friend. Um, and at this point, it's out of my hands, so I have to just let go of any of those fears or concerns. Well, if it helps, I already have excerpts from the book written down on a post-it note on my desk. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm dying to know what they are. Can I ask you? Um, sure. Let me. I'm not at my desk, but they're in my notebook, no, that's okay. too. All kinds of good things, but uh, the one I, well, there's a couple that have some not FCC-approved words in there, but um, <laughs> Ari Shapiro, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. I've loved the conversation. Thank you. <laughs> Ari Shapiro's book is called The Best Strangers in the World. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Senator Harry Truman was a relative newcomer to Washington when he began assembling a bipartisan team to take on powerful corporate entities in America. Fraud and corruption had taken hold of the Pentagon's dealings with business leaders as the U.S. struggled to prepare for war in the months before the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. Steve Drummond is an award-winning senior editor and executive producer at NPR. His latest book is called The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II. This conversation first aired in May. Before Pearl Harbor, as Truman, uh, you know, becomes more prominent in the Senate through this investigative committee, one of the things that struck me about your book was how ill-prepared America was. It was, he said, as if we had learned nothing from World War I, did we really think that there would never be another war? What can you do to put this in context for listeners? Sure. The first investigation of the Truman Committee looked at the construction of army camps. Um, it seems kind of innocuous. Or harm, harm, uh, you know, it seems like kind of a small scale investigation, but the, the nation was building hundreds of army camps around the country. They were spending several billion dollars on this. And when Truman started investigating, it turned out after World War One, the plans to build army camps had been lost or thrown away or something. And it found out that uh, they weren't planning for, oh, maybe we should have uh, a gas station so we can put gas in the trucks. Maybe we should have hard concrete so we can park these heavy tanks on there. What the Truman Committee's report said was the army was being run along Civil War lines. They were they were building these army camps and training facilities as if it was still the horse-drawn era. And and Truman's investigation found out that the country would wasting waste had wasted some hundred million dollars on these army camps. And that was just the beginning. You spend some time talking about his Midwestern values and how he's always wrestling with this, uh, I need to work with the political machine, but I also need to keep my personal integrity intact. How did that help him <laughs> prepare for the work of the Truman Committee? Very much so. Um, yeah, throughout his career, Truman struggled with this. He was a politician, and politicians have to make compromises and sometimes deals, and and yet... Um, he was also very dedicated from his time in the military in World War I to his time as a county judge in, in Missouri to now his time as a senator. He was very devoted to public service. But this kind of uh, struggle served him well on the Truman Committee. He took great efforts to 
make a bipartisan committee to involve the other senators, including the Republicans on the committee in the decision-making process, and it paid off. Not only did they save the country billions of dollars and probably thousands of lives on the battlefield, um, but in his 32 years as chairman, uh, sorry, in his three years as chairman, the committee put out 32 reports. Every single one of them was unanimous and bipartisan. And that's something I think the Washington of today could stand to learn something from. Right. Um, I want to talk about those lives on the battlefield because one of my favorite stories or anecdotes or scenes from this book is really when he is there for the first time getting shelled um, in France, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, a sergeant in the group, he he is an officer. He's been elected by the men to be an officer. And a, a sergeant says, let's get out of here. And people start running. And uh, Truman unleashes a tirade of language. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's legendary. Tell Where, where did he learn yeah. all those all those words? <laughs> oh, tr- uh, right. Truman had served in the National Guard. And then when, when the United States went to war in World War One, he... Uh, the National Guard unit chose him to be their captain, and he was put in charge of an artillery battery, four cannons and 198 men, I think, to run it. And so in their very first time in combat, the Germans started shelling them. And as you say, one of the sergeants uh, shouts, let's go, and r- starts running for the uh, running for the rear. Uh, and Truman stood up, and, and in his teen years working on the railroad, he had learned from railroad workers, uh, as he put it, every foul word in the English language. And so (laughs) Truman stood up and began screaming at his men with all the filthy language at his command. And they kind of sheepishly turned around and came back to do their jobs. And so that was kind of one of his first examples of, of him being a leader and him showing that he could command and, and, and make people do what he wanted. And you have wonderful excerpts of the letters he wrote to his wife, to his daughter, letters he wrote to himself. And he says to her, I was really just too scared to run. <laughs> <laughs> he, did. he said they didn't know, but his men after that kind of viewed him as a lucky officer. Nobody was killed throughout the war. His his unit only lost one man killed in action, and many of them credited their captain. So this was, of course, uh, stuff that served him well later as a politician. How important were those letters to you? The the oh. original research that you are I mean, the original documents. I mean that you that you found. What did you see of the man in those letters that was personal? Oh, my gosh. Um, It's one of the great things about Truman was, one, he was a very devoted husband and a dedicated father. And he, whenever he was away from his wife and daughter, he missed them terribly. Uh, Many of his letters he would sign, Lonesome Harry. Um, But also, for me as a writer... You can follow him through the war. I can. You can tell not only where he was on any given day, but what was going on in his mind because he sat down that night and wrote his wife a letter about it. And through it, he comes across as kind of the guy who's come down through history, uh, a sometimes hot-tempered guy, but a likable, dedicated person. And and that really comes through in his letters to his wife. And funny, too. Truman uh, Truman's kind of a fun guy, and it was a really great pleasure to spend a lot of time, you know, going through all these documents. Now, he is the quiet man in the felt hat who shows up at the army camp and sees the waste, sees the fraud, but he also relies on letters coming from American citizens across the country. How important were whistleblowers, essentially, to the Truman Committee's work? Oh, very much so. It was another of the inspiring things in writing this book as I sat in the National Archives reading 
hundreds, thousands of these letters that people wrote into Truman saying, dear Senator Truman, you know, something funny is going on down here at the factory, or why don't you investigate, you know, steel production? And several, in two cases, those led to the biggest investigations of the Truman Committee. One was at an airplane factory in Ohio where people writing in saying, hey, they're fudging the inspection. They're shipping bad engines out the door here, and they may be winding up in airplanes being flown by American servicemen. The other was from a steel inspector outside Pittsburgh, who was saying the same thing. Hey, they're cutting corners. Bad steel is going out the door here, and it may be ending up in ships or uh, warships that are being built by the United States right now. Who knows? Maybe people are getting killed because of this bad steel. And those were the two investigations that put Truman on the front page of virtually every newspaper in the country, made him kind of a national hero, and directly led to him becoming vice president. You also write through his letters and through the things that he didn't do, his evolving racial views. How important is it for journalists today who are doing this kind of historical work, like writing a book about the Truman Committee, to spend time to really understand um, Truman's not all there as a civil rights advocate in the in, during this time that you're writing about? Tell us about that. Exactly. Truman grew up in a deeply racist and segregation time and place. Um, uh, and those were the, you know, sort of uh, ideals that he absorbed as a child. Later, as president, he would oversee the integration of the armed forces and the federal government. He would be a strong advocate for civil rights legislation. But as you say, this period of his life finds him in transition. He's still using some of the racial slurs that that were common in his personal language. And yet he's slowly realizing that as a that as a United States senator, it was his job to serve all the people he represented. Having said that, very early on, the uh, uh, black leaders in the country urged him to investigate the deep racism and discrimination in the military and in defense contracting plants. Truman initially said he would look into it. He kept promising to do so. But by 1944, the Truman Committee had not got around to that. And when he was running for vice president, the Republicans would certainly point that out. You also, I think, my opinion here, have done a lovely job at highlighting the work of women on the committee, highly educated, highly talented women who are regulated to stenography or stenographer or secretary. What was it like for you to sort of search out interviews with their families and get to know uh, who these women were because they haven't been written about before? It was clear that there were a lot of really smart women going to work. I mean, no, no one doubts there were a lot of really smart women going to work in Washington in nineteen in nineteen forties. Having said that, the workplace at the time, pretty much in in the case of the Truman Committee, relegated them to secretarial work. One of these women, Marion Toomey, had a law degree. She was made a secretary, and eventually her work stood out so much that she was promoted to investigator. She lived to be 100. She died in 2016, just before I started writing this book, and I would have very much loved to have speak with her. Having said that, I had wonderful Zoom calls and interviews and conversations with her children, who are, of course, very proud of their mother. And so those were some of the most pleasurable moments of writing the book was sort of bringing to life the stories of these uh, women on the committee and and talking with their descendants and and sort of hearing stories about their parents. Yeah. If you were telling, uh, coaching a young journalist how to find that story, how to find that human story, what would you say? Oh, my gosh. It was so many. In writing the story, 
it's easy to go through the documents and see all the policy, or I can read the newspaper and the quotes from Truman, but it's these behind the scenes, uh, these little moments and the details that made it possible to tell the characters. Yeah. Those came out from the personal documents or from digging really hard. I had, I spent a lot of time on Ancestry.com trying to track down their relatives and descendants of these folks, and 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 to a person, they were very eager and willing to share their time with me and tell me about their tell me about their father or their grandfather or grandmother. Wow, that is remarkable. One more question. I know you have a busy day, but when we look at the success of the committee, the bipartisanship, that the the sweeping change, the accountability, the way that they were able to work with the media to get the public to trust them. Uh, have you seen anything like that recently coming out of Washington? What have we learned from the Truman Committee and what have we not learned um, in Congress, particularly in congressional investigations from this history? That's a great question. And I think it is the biggest legacy of the Truman Committee is that so many times in the decades since then, whether it was the Kipfauver hearings in the 1950s into organized crime or the Watergate hearings in the 1970s or hearings about the financial crisis after 2008, maybe even the January 6th committee, we've seen that all of these investigate these bipartisan investigations kind of trace their roots back to the Truman Committee. Have, you know, having said that, and as you well know, the spirit of bipartisanship in Washington today is, you know, sometimes seemingly non-existent. And it was a great pleasure to look back to the 1940s to a time when public servants were willing to set aside their partisan or personal goals and, and really direct their work towards the public service. And I found that really inspiring. Steve Drummond's The Watchdog is in stores now. More in the moment after the break on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Welcome back. Mary Louise Kelly is the anchor of NPR's daily news show, All Things Considered. She's also the author of the book, It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. It's a memoir, a bittersweet one, filled with humor and heart and behind-the-scenes stories of a journalist breaking new ground and also trying to find her way. This interview originally aired in April. The tenderness and the skill with which you write about your children, your husband, your work, your parents, yourself, um, it is obvious in some ways that this is not your first time sitting down to write. It's not your first book, which I think many people would be surprised at. Tell me a little bit about um, Mary Louise as a writer. Ah, thank you for the question. I um, I love to write, and I... I hope it comes through and I'm glad if it does. I think in a funny way, it's one of the reasons I was drawn to radio. I, I always have loved journalism. I've started a newspaper on my street when I was, I don't know, 11, 12 years old, and I edited my high school paper and kind of have always been on this track. But I don't think I could have told you radio was where I was going to land necessarily. And it became clear as I explored working at a newspaper and working in TV and trying all the things that I really love words. <laughs> um, yeah. And TV had its attractions and glamour and my makeup would have looked great every day, which I cannot say for working at NPR. But ultimately, and I say this with the deepest of respect for our colleagues in TV, it's about the pictures. It's about the video. It's about the images. And what you are saying is little bit secondary. And in a funny way, radio, it's all about the words. That's all you've got. Can I draw you into this story? 
when all you've got is my voice and the words. And so writing for radio is different from writing for anything else, as you would know well. But it's been such a pleasure to 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 figure out how to do it and to keep trying to get a little bit better at it every day. And then the challenge of, okay, can I hold your attention not just for a four or five minute interview on all things considered, but like for several hours to get you to read a book? That sounds like a fun challenge. Let's try it. It is un. It's you can't put it down. It is. A, it is a page turner, and not only because there are things that I really want. I want you to take me into the room with the Secretary of State. I want you to take me onto the plane, but then I also want you to take me into um, the hairdressers with you and the sidelines of the <laughs> soccer tournament. Yeah. And to the audiologist, what sort of decisions did you make then to say I'm going to write? And let people into some deeply personal moments in my life and what I am thinking in those moments. So this book began with me really wrestling with what was going to be the last year in our house that my family of four was guaranteed to all live together, to all be under the same roof because my oldest son was entering his senior year of high school and was looking at colleges, none of which were very close to home. Um, he was desperate to get away and out in the world. So I thought this is this is the last year that it's going to be the way that, you know, it has been for the last two decades. Let me let me kind of sit with that and see what that looks like. And I started writing and I realized I was interested in exploring the deals that I have cut with myself over the years. Um, there have been trade-offs. I have made them as I tried to balance a job that I love with a family that I love. And I found I couldn't write about being a mom and what those trade-offs and, you know, moments where it feels like there's no right answer. You can't be in two places at once. I couldn't write about all that without also sharing how much I love my job and why these were difficult choices. They're all tied up. I mean, all of us contain so many, you know, wear so many hats and have so many facets to what we do and how we move through the world. And I found trying to write just a straight journalist memoir didn't work because there was so much of my life that wasn't in that. Trying to write a straight mom memoir didn't work because there was so much I brought to being a mom that had to do with who I am in my career and as a journalist. The challenge of this book as I wrote it in real time, which is what I did, was to try to make sense of how I've braided those things together or tried to and that everybody else is going to have different threads of their life that they're navigating and juggling every day, but that maybe we all have had this experience, certainly have all had the experience of I desperately absolutely need to be in this place, at which is a direct conflict with this other place I need to be and this other person I need to show up for, and that that might be something that, you know, I don't have an answer to it, but that we've all confronted. And if I shared a little bit of how I've tried to figure it out and continue to try to figure it out, that that might speak to people. Yeah. It broke my heart at times. And I'm thinking of a story when you're trying to, to well, first of all, my favorite chapter, Mary Louise, is when you're in the hairdresser and you start thinking about your father and the way that uh-huh. you wove that together was just so beautiful to me. But I'm thinking for our listeners' purposes today, you're trying to really finish the book, make progress on the book you're trying to be there for your kids, but you also have to be there for NPR. You have to be there for yourself, for your husband, and you have to finish this book and meet your deadline. So you take a little trip, a little 
sort of retreat. I'm going to sit and I'm going to work on this book and then I'm going to fly back for this big soccer game. It's all going to work. <laughs> and then <laughs> the impossibility of our lives, and I think everybody can feel this, the weather comes in and you cannot get on the plane. You're completely grounded. And like my heart shattered in all these little pieces. I'm thinking she did everything right. And yet she's still not going to be able to be there. And you're beating yourself up. Well, that's what we do, isn't it? You beat yourself up. Um, And I certainly in that moment, I had planned this fabulous, I was going to take a week and do nothing but write and be by myself and write 20 hours a day. And then I was you know, triumphantly going to roll in and make the soccer game, make the flight to get me to the important soccer game for my sons and for once have figured out how to have it all and all at once. And yes, a hurricane rolled in and quite literally blew those plans out of the water. That was, of course, like, you know, the game that my son scored the winning goal in golden goal overtime and and won the high school championships. And um I I remember sitting with such conflicting emotions, just total joy for him and his teammates um, that they'd worked so hard and they'd won and total anger at myself that I hadn't gotten on a plane the day before that I'd cut it so close because I wanted to keep writing. And then a little bit of shame because I had promised myself that this was the year of, of no do-overs and that I was going to show up and make the choice that put my family first. And I had somehow still managed to miss the key game um there is a slightly happier coda to that which is there was the postseason yes in (laughs) soccer and i made the critical game in that one in soccer there's always another game okay um that's i don't know what the takeaway is other than that we're all doing our best and somehow or the other it, it works out it is an incredible book of the moment, and I mentioned the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and when you tell that story, you tell it as, this is what I want my sons to remember about this moment. This is what I want them to notice. So I would make the argument that writing this book is for your sons because they will have it forever, and I just want to say thank you for sharing it with all of us as well. It's beautifully done. Thank you. That was my goal. You know, writers write about the things that interest them and the things that they love. And um, so writing a book about my family and my children is, it's about my struggles and drama. I didn't want the focus to be on them as as teenagers. They're allowed a private life. But I hope that one day they're able to read it for what it is, which is which is a love letter to the two people who I will always love most in the world. Mary Louise Kelly's book is called It Goes So Fast. It's in stores now. For 41 years, faithful NPR listeners have gotten news from every corner of Europe from Sylvia Pajoli. She is the longest-serving reporter on the international desk, and her name is almost synonymous with NPR. Earlier this year, she signed off from NPR for the final time as she moves on to other projects and that includes reading long novels. I spoke with her in March. It occurred to me this morning that most listeners from South Dakota know what they know about Europe, about Italy, about the papacy, because of your work. And I'm curious if you think about that, if you think about who is going to listen to this story around the world in a variety of settings, including South Dakota. Does that occur to you when you're doing your reporting? Well, of course, I think it's important. I, I do think that whatever story I cover has to be um, comprehensible to a, an American audience. I can't, you know, it would be very different 
to uh, a French or Italian or even British audience. So definitely, I do think in terms of generally, I, I can't say I think of South Dakota specifically, but I do think of an American audience. That way. Uh, talk a little bit about resources, if you will, because the stories that you have done over the years have been ongoing. Some have been, uh, you know, incredibly co complex with political and cultural causes and conflict. How important has it been to have the resources to do that kind of coverage and feel like you can do it right? It depends what you mean by resources, being able to travel, to go to those places, not always possible, not always Sometimes, you know, especially now, <laughs> there's some financial straits at the network, let's put it that way, so you can't always, uh, you know, be on site. Um, although I have to say, you know, the network was very, uh, very, very helpful in, in the case of certainly covering the war in Bosnia and, and the, the whole, all, the, all 10 years of the wars that brought to, uh, the demise of Yugoslavia, um, we were there, not just me, a lot of us covered that story for a long time. So I think NPR did, you know, definitely paid for that. In terms otherwise, you know, um, it was a very complicated story. And when I first started, you know, I had brought with me some books, recent analysis about uh, what the Balkans were in the Cold War and all that. And they proved totally useless. And in the end, I had to go back and find books from the beginning of the of the century that talk about uh, the earlier Balkan wars and ethnic strife. And so um, all these stories turn out to be, yes, very complicated and you need you need the right historical books to be able to to prepare for them. Yeah, I think that's what I was getting at, too, is if you you did that kind of coverage. And now, as we look to the future and we we have question marks over the kind of investments that will be made in news at NPR and in other news organizations to do that level of reporting, what's at stake if those stories are not told? It's 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 very bad. I mean, it's really very bad. And I, I'm, I'm very glad that, for instance, NPR has put so much coverage um, so much uh, behind uh, covering Ukraine because it's extremely important. Um, but if if you know if these if these these stories across the world that are so they can impact us, all of us, uh, uh, in the states and everywhere else, uh, it's it's I mean people have to know, uh, and uh, it's it's scary the thing to think that you know the financial straits are going to make it more difficult to to cover some of these stories. It, it, it's um, you know, I think we have to make we have to make sure that as much coverage as possible done, even with um, you know diminished uh, possibilities. Yeah, I'm wondering if you would talk about your father and something he told you when you were younger, and he died when you were quite young, like 16, I believe, where he was a comparative literature professor. He believed strongly in poetry. He taught you so much. And he said, do you see a pattern all the time? Would you say that for me in the Italian English that he said? And then tell me how that has impacted you as a journalist. It's funny, you know, he always said it, even when he was speaking Italian, he would always say the word pattern because the word pattern doesn't quite, it doesn't translate perfectly. There isn't an Italian ex, um, uh, equivalent. So he would always say to his students, uh, you know, do you see the pattern? <laughs> I can't really repeat his accent. I can't really imitate his accent. But, um, well, my father, you know, was Italian. My parents both were born in Italy and they were anti-fascist and had to had to leave for political reasons, had to leave Italy in, in, the, in 1938. 
And, um, but you know, he maintained in, in he, his career developed in the United States as a professor, but he always maintained a link with, with Italy. He wrote books both in English and in Italian. And uh, he kept his sort of literary, literary activity across uh, the Atlantic. And I'd say he was very cosmopolitan. And I think probably, um, you know, I learned more about the, the importance of, you know, uh, crossing borders and being part of a broader world of culture from him than, um, than from anybody else. And it was very useful uh, in covering the more depressing stories of the development of nationalism and, and the uh, explosion of, of racism that has come, a lot of it also since the, since the, at the end of communism in Europe, much of it in Eastern Europe in particular. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I thought a lot about my, my the, what I learned from my parents um, was very useful for me in covering this, the, the new developments in Europe in the last uh, 10, 20 years. The trend in journalism right now is about doing great work, but also with an eye to wellness and taking care of yourself. And I look at your work and I can't imagine that ever occurred to you, not only from the courage that you exhibited, but from the focus that you have. Does that make any sense to you? Is that a good trend? Well, yeah. I mean, if you can. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have, uh, when I was covering the war, all this stuff of hostile environment training and uh, taking and, and talking about P PTSD that has developed later. I mean, we basically, um, you know, we had, we did a lot of improvisation uh, uh, on that level. Um, I don't know uh, now. Yeah, I think, you know, you can, but the problem is, you know, the deadline really determines our job more than anything else, you know, and uh, I think it was Roger Baker said, um, my muse is the deadline. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you got to, <laughs> You know, um, yeah, you have to be able to take a break after doing an intense, you know, uh, period of reporting. You do need a break. But I, yeah, take thinking about wellness on a day-to-day -day level when you're on a big story that you need to do a lot of a lot of reporting on, it's a little bit difficult. What will people be looking for in the papacy going forward? Um, you have been our guide for that for so long. As we look at what happens next with Pope Francis, what are some key elements? Hey, pay attention to this. Pay attention to that. Well, what will be very important, he's been now preparing this major uh, assembly that's going to take place both this fall and again the following year. And it's a huge assembly of, of, of bishops from all over the world to really discuss, um, to broaden the participation also of the laity, uh, and also certainly of women also in in church um, in church affairs, also in in decision making, and in a way it'll be his signature. I think it'll be his signature uh, event. Either it'll be his big triumph, or it might be, um, you know, a, a failure. It depends so much on also how much um, uh, resistance he finds from traditionalists and how much how much. Um, uh, that he can, you know, and also, you know, he's, he's getting older also, you know, he still looks like to me, like he's in pretty good health and he's very lucid, but you know, he's, he, he follows a very, very, um, I think exhausting schedule. He never takes vacations. Um, he's does a lot. So it, we'll have to see, um, he, he just completed 10 years and, um, but he is, you know, he's encountering an awful lot of resistance and criticism from the traditionalist wing of the of the church, which is not a huge, it's not hugely big, but it's very, it has a lot of 
uh, power and um, a lot of um, media influence. So, you know, that's, that's, I think, the big story looking forward about this papacy. I hope your schedule is less exhausting in the days ahead. Do you have plans? I know I'm crossing my fingers that you will write more about your father and his papers and how that has impacted you. What are you looking forward to doing next? Uh, reading long novels, which I haven't <laughs> done in a long time. That's my first, my first task. That is the great Sylvia Pajoli. That is our show for today, and we hope that it served you. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, Kara Hetland, I'm Lori Walsh. We thank you for listening. Thank you.